Welcome, everyone. Today, I have a special guest, my friend, Gemma. Hello. I joke about that just because on every episode, we always start with, today, we have a special guest, and they all are special. But Gemma, you'll be my special guest today just because most of the questions I will direct towards you. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. (laughs) We've not done a question and answer episode for a while. We've just been getting a lot of people lined up so that you can have an opportunity to hear firsthand people's experiences with all of this. This episode is going to be a question and answer. And Gemma, I will let you first read the question that was asked on the Keepers Discussion Group. So go ahead. All righty. Actually, we only had one after I posted my update. I was surprised. So if I'm missing something, people post it there and we'll get to it another time. This question is from Sue Carper Slade and reiterated by Donna Selling Selling Diva. And the question is, how long after Sister Kathy's murder did Maskell leave Keo? I remember from the keepers, it was pretty quick departure. Can you elaborate on this? Okay, I'm not sure where folks might have gotten that impression because it was not a quick departure. Maskell was at Keo from 1967 until 1975. In 1969, Kathy was murdered. So he remained there for another five to six years. In fact, that is where most of the stories of abuse from Lil, Teresa, Jean, Donna, almost everybody, the abuse was after Kathy's murder. Because those most of those women did not, except for Jean, did not know Kathy. The only other ones that knew Kathy were, that talked to Kathy, were Kathy Hoback and our anonymous friend. And there might have been one other. But anyway, in 1975, that is when Lee told us that she talked to Father Fran Maloli at the Sparks Retreat House, told him about the abuse. He said he would take care of it. And by the end of that year, Maskell was gone. So I want to clarify that it was not a quick departure. It was at the end of a year, and it was probably because of what Lee told Maloli. I want to add, though, and I know I go on a long time, but I know you guys are going to want to know, Maskell was not part of the faculty. The nuns were not his bosses. He was put there by the Archdiocese of Baltimore. So the bishop was his boss. Okay. He still lived in a rectory at first at St. Clement's and then at the parish called Our Lady of Victory. So to be at Keogh, he was only there during the day. He did not stay for faculty meetings. He wanted to run everything, but he wasn't really part of the faculty at all. So his day job was at Keogh, and then he would go back to live at St. Clement's or at Our Lady of Victory, and those both had elementary schools, so he was still with children every day. Perfect. And I wanted to add something really quickly before I read off more questions. When we were speaking with Lil in our last episodes, it was brought up about Father Maskell's education, and I wanted to correct some of the things that I said because I was able to find all of his information about that 
First of all, it looks like he was ordained in 1965. So he must have been pretty young, Gemma, when he was at Keogh. Is that yes. right? He went to one parish. He was at, I believe, I would have to look. He was someplace for a year assisting. And then he was assigned to St. Clement's. And it was while he was at St. Clement's that he began working at Keogh. So I have that in 1972, he earned a master's degree in school psychology from Towson State University. And then he obtained a certificate of advanced study in counseling from the John Hopkins University. And something else that I wanted to add really quickly, and I know that this is touched on a lot in the keepers and stuff, but in addition to his teaching duties at Keogh, he also had served as chaplain for two police agencies, the Maryland State Police and Baltimore County Police, as well as for the Maryland National Guard and the Air National Guard. And when he was at the Air National Guard, he actually held a rank of lieutenant colonel. So I just wanted to add that just for correction from our last episode, because I didn't have that handy. Talking to people firsthand, we don't always have all of the information in front of us. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to correct that. And I remember that timeline now, but he also was the chaplain. And this is important at for the army at Fort Meade, which was where Joyce Malecki, her boyfriend was stationed. And I would like to add that part of his job there would have been to counsel soldiers coming home from Vietnam with post-traumatic stress PTSD, okay, that disorder. So keep that in mind, guys. We don't have an answer yet for Joyce, but he would have had access to a lot of soldiers who were not mentally balanced or emotionally balanced at all, but who were probably very strong. The other thing that's important is that the master's in school counseling is not a master's in psychology. And the certificate of counseling that he got from Hopkins is not a PhD. He made himself out to be way more important than he really was. And I remember Richmond telling Dr. Lee saying that certificate in school counseling is not that difficult to get. A certificate is always easier to get than a full-fledged degree. Agreed. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me down there my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So are you ready for the questions, Gemma? Yep. All right. So Susan asks, who has possession of all of Maskell's boxes that were buried in the cemetery? Okay, we've talked about this before, but I will reiterate what my understanding is, okay? There were three truckloads of boxes and trash bags with stuff in them deposited in that big old hole. By the way, the hole that's on the movie is not exactly where the stuff was buried. That might have been like people digging graves, the people that run the the cemetery. But the place where all that was buried is way down off a fire road, way in the back of the cemetery that's almost impossible to get to. Okay, so we're thinking about a hole the size of a room, okay, 12 by 12 and 10 feet deep. So look around your house and picture a small bedroom. When all that was dug up, we do not know where it went directly. We've been told it was taken to an evidence room at the police department. I do. I think it went to the city, but I'm not sure. Then we were told there was a flood years later from one of the hurricanes that we've had and that everything in the evidence room was ruined. Now, I did talk to an ex-cop friend who did say that if something is ruined because of water, it has to be destroyed because it's no good as evidence. The mold and whatever else it is, it's also very dangerous for anybody who's working there. So we were told that all that was ruined in a flood. I don't know if that's true. I also heard how rumor is that all that stuff was moved into a shipping container at Fort Meade property. Now, a shipping container is like a truck body. It's possible. I have a friend who might be listening. She lives in England, and she has filed a FOIA request with that agency to determine, I think it's the FBI actually, to determine if there is a shipping container that's got all that stuff in it. I don't know. You know, the police know a lot more than we do. For example, I know I'm going off track, but everybody's still concerned about the necklace. Police knew all along that necklace was never a part of this crime, but they didn't know we were putting that into the keepers. They didn't even know about the keepers at the time. So it wasn't until they saw the series and the necklace was very convincing 
that we were able to find out through one of the families that necklace had nothing to do with Sister Kathy. So a lot of what we did the best we could, but the police obviously know a whole lot more than we do. And I've begged to be able to look at it. And the department cannot do that because let's say they let Gemma and Abby or Gemma and Shane or the man next door, I don't know, sit down and look at the records. Then the fact that we looked at the records could absolutely negate the whole case. I could be called to testify about what I saw and I could, I could be complicit in obstructing justice or cold cases are not public cases. I don't know how many times to say it. I'm good at reading between the lines, but the information goes in one direction to the police, not to Gemma. There you go. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I deleted the question after I asked it, so I forget what it was, too. Okay, I'm, I think I'm I sure. It. Oh, about yeah. the stuff in the hole. Yeah, we don't know where it is. Yeah, yep. I think we almost dedicated our, an entire episode on the cemetery day. I think we did. But we do know what was in the hole. And that was on TV two summers ago with Christian Schaefer. He came to Ocean City. And I had somebody looking who was a photographer. She did still shots. And we determined that it was all, it was psychological testing. And it was stuff that Maskell was not permitted to administer. It was personality tests that determined things like how susceptible you are to suggestion, how trustworthy you are. Can you focus on more than one thing at a time? The stuff was very leading and very inappropriate. And Maskell came during my sophomore year. So I was not subjected to his weird tests that he gave the freshmen. I had a different religion teacher when I was a freshman. But yeah, he gave those tests to probably all the freshmen each year. And a lot of that is what was in the hole. Just to clarify, you had someone do still shots of the footage from when that stuff was being taken up? Yes, and that is not part of the keepers. That's a whole nother story. Christian Schaefer, who is the reporter friend I have from WMAR-TV, got in touch with me and he said he found it on, I could actually probably post that little interview maybe on your page so that people can look at it. He found the footage on, some of you won't know what this is, a VHS tape. (laughs) <laughs> the big fat one and they didn't even have a vhs player to play it on they had to borrow one from somebody and it was in their archives in a box there was other things on the tape and it said something about cemetery papers i don't know and he looked at it and there it was so a friend of mine was looking at it she was able to stop and enhance We could actually read some of the things that were written. We could see that parents had signed off on some of the papers. We could see what some of the questions were. We could see the kind of test it was. We could probably do a whole podcast about what was in that hole. I would be willing to do that. You guys want to do that? Okay, good. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, and we will post the video in the Out of the Shadows discussion group on Facebook. That's a good idea. All right, so the next question from Kara 
is has Edgar's DNA been tested against the cigarette? Yes. To my knowledge, at this point, his DNA has not matched. And Cindy has asked, why was the necklace eliminated as related to Kathy? I think I just explained that, but I can explain a little bit more. Um, The night that Kathy went out to Edmondson Village Shopping Center, there is a strip mall strip shopping center on one side of the highway and on the other side was a huge department store called the heck company the heck company was like three floors with escalators and around the escalator on the bottom floor was muley's bakery and that's where she bought the buns and i understand from someone else that she inquired that night about how to open a bridal registry, which is where the bride right puts a list of things that they want and then people can buy those things. So it appears from the notes, I don't have the notes, I don't know who this person was, it was the saleswoman, but that somebody, uh, the police interviewed her and she did tell them that Kat, she remembered Kathy being there and didn't really understand a bridal registry and that's what she was doing now that doesn't mean she didn't shop for a gift but for a reason unknown to me it was not the necklace we also found that necklace was not one of a kind although the gemologist did a fantastic job talking about it once people saw the keepers we had people sending us pictures of the same necklace in different birthstones. So apparently it was not an expensive piece of jewelry. It was more maybe like a trendy thing. And it would have been probably $10 to $15. That was a lot of money then. But anyway, the family, Kathy's family, have returned it to the police department to notify Debbie Yone that she could have the necklace back. And I don't know what has happened since then. But for some reason, it was eliminated from the case. It's not relevant. I think that we do know that it wasn't the birthstone of Edgar's current wife at the time that he gave it to. So there's kind of still that question on why he gave her a birthstone that wasn't hers. And again, Edgar seems yeah. a little odd. From what I understand, he was a petty thief. So Edgar did time, people. He's not like escaping the law. He was in jail for different things. He stole a car. Um, Abby was able to find actually an outstanding warrant for something. And he did some time and he just, the smoking guns had nothing to do with Kathy's murder. So it's not like he could have been held on any of the stuff we shared with the police. And there were some things we did share that we had found that they had, and they were appreciative. It wasn't like they were like mad. They we're very happy that we could give them more information. But we do know that he was a petty thief, which means he could have been stealing things. We know from Debbie Yone and from another individual that he would ride around in his car and try to get girls to get in the car. We don't know how many people and bad things he was involved in. And he could have taken that necklace from one of his victims. So you've heard it here first, Edgar. Was a grade A creep. <laughs> yeah, I feel very sorry for his family, and I really wish he had made a confession, but that didn't happen. 
And hopefully, I still believe this is going to be solved. I think there are people out there, maybe even somebody listening right now that knows what happened. And I just really am sending my positive energy and strength to that person to come forward. Somebody told me something last night by email that they didn't think was important. And it was important. You never know. People think that things are inconsequential and they're not. Even little things, a name, a date, a face, a car, an address, a phone number, it's all important. And my private message is open and Shane is open to you contacting him. Abby is available if you want to talk to her on the Keepers page. The police are available. So please keep it coming. We're not going to get there without you. This is a team effort. It always has been. I agree. And we can also look at Sharon, who came to us because of the information she had from being at the apartment the night before and the morning of Kathy's disappearance. And we were able to learn new things that we didn't know before. So that's it's always very important for people to come forward, even if you think it's just the smallest detail. It also closes the timeline. We can now fit in that people were up and about early in the morning the next day, that Jerry and Pete were still there, that Russell was standing with Sharon when a detective asked her if something happened to Keogh, that somebody asked her to do something she didn't want to do. We didn't know that stuff, and she didn't think it was important. It is, people. Yes. All right, so Maria has asked... What made you start your investigation after all these years? That's an interesting question. Tom Nugent. When I was, let's see, probably six years ago, in my home, on my computer, the phone rang, and he introduced himself, and he said that he was going back to look at the case that had happened in the 90s, the Doe Row case, which I knew about, but nothing ever came of it, so it hadn't impacted me. And neither my sister nor I knew anything about any abuse, so it hadn't impacted her. And he said he was trying to, he was going through yearbooks and he had been over to Keogh and the principal that was a man at the time allowed him to look at the yearbooks and he had names and he just started making phone calls. And I guess I was on the list and I, we talked about a half hour and in 1992, I had the honor of being the Maryland Teacher of the Year, and I owe that to Kathy because I watched how she taught, and if nobody is familiar with the Socratic method, look it up. I'm not going to explain it now. I'll do it another time, but that's how she taught, and that works, and so when I became a teacher... I began giving my students problems and questions that made them think deeper, not harder, but deeper and not just yes and no answers. They had to prove why they thought something was true or give me an example of it. So Tom and I talked and he asked if he could use me in the article. And I talked about Kathy and that article is called Who Killed Sister Kathy? It's that really big article he has open at the beginning of The Keepers in the first scene. And you can read that. It's very long. It's going to take you a while. But he quoted me and several other women saying what a wonderful teacher she was. She was the reason I became a teacher. So with that, I helped him with the article. 
when it was finished, he submitted it to the Baltimore Sun. They would not publish it. Washington Post would not publish it. New York Times would not publish it. Now, Tom is a well-known journalist. He has written all over the world, all over the country. He's well-respected. They all felt like it was too daring. And to be honest with you, I think there were times when the newspaper was also in the pocket of the archdiocese and that there were too many legal risks in publishing a story that pointed fingers at the police and at the church. So he finally decided that he would submit it to a newspaper called the City Paper. If you're from Baltimore, you know that paper. It's not an underground paper, but it's sort of like a Gemma paper. It's very liberal. It's got really intriguing puzzles in it that you could win prizes. And I was always winning movie tickets for solving the puzzles. And anyway, so that ended up there. It got good coverage. And that was that. So about five years ago, after Tom had done that story, I believe it was in 2006. So I have to look it up. Anyway, about five years ago, out of the blue, I sent him an email one summer and said, when are you coming back and finishing that story? So he showed up in the fall of 2014 and things developed from there. He started the Inside Baltimore online blog. If you have not read it, go to InsideBaltimore.com and you can read all Tom's stories. They're great and they all center on this case. Have you read any of his, Shane? No, I didn't even realize that there was that blog. Oh, yeah. It's called Inside Baltimore. And it's, it's some, the subheading is the real story of Baltimore or something. So there's all, he's probably done about 10. There's one with Gene and Ryan or Gene and Charles. There's one with some of the women he interviewed here in Baltimore. So I invite all of you to go read and you can leave comments inside Baltimore by Tom Nugent, N-U-G-E-N-T. And to find that big article called Who Killed Sister Kathy from the city paper. And so we started the the Facebook page and Abby jumped in and she was the voice of reason. I was more emotional, big surprise, right? Who cries all the time? That would be me. And so she and I started working and she was very sensible. She would have great ideas about how we could get information. So she really became the tracker, the research person. And I was the one that does stuff like this. And I don't want you guys to think Abby's like sick or gone. She just prefers not to be in the media. She has children and grandchildren and they don't all live in the area. So she and her husband spend a lot of time with their family and Teddy and Gemma live at the beach. So she has a different situation and still is doing research. Abby is doing great work in terms of finding out what's going on around the country and especially legally in Maryland with the Maryland General Assembly and watching to see what bishop is being ousted and what's happening with our own statute of limitations. 
All right. So Annie has a question, and it is, did any of Maskell's victims have medical examinations by family doctors, which may have shown evidence of abuse? I'm not sure how to answer that. I don't know. I know of some who have had health issues, medical issues, because physical health issues because of the abuse. But to ask if family doctors did examinations at the same time that he was taking them to Richter or abusing young men and women, I don't know. But I do know that many of the survivors have had not only mental and emotional issues, but physical maladies as well. And just to add to that, when it comes to information from survivors, that's not information that if we had, we would probably release anyway. That would be right. their own decision to release it in their own time. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very confidential. Yeah. And, I, and things like stress anxieties, that is a physical malady. I would not, I don't know, but I would not be sharing anything personal about anybody's female issues. All right. And Carrie, her question is, did any of Maskell's victims end up pregnant? That again, that would not be up to us to, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It wouldn't surprise me, but it would all be speculation. Nobody said, oh, guess what? I had a child by Joseph Maskell. So I really don't know. And even if I did, that would not be my news to share with. And we can share this, that the Dr. Richter, is it public information? And I can delete this if it's not, Gemma, but that there were abortions being done? That's correct. And they were done under the heading of a D, capital D, and C which is a female procedure that is, how do I say this? Okay, Catholic hospitals do not do abortions. St. Joseph's Hospital had Maskell admitted a number of girls, like for not any overnight stays, but outpatient surgery, and it was billed to insurance as a DNC. And I don't know a lot of details, but that would have been, uh, Richter did the surgery, done at night, and they went home, Maskell took them home, and I would imagine that would have been maybe an abortion if they were pregnant. If somebody knows anybody who knows anything about St. Joseph's Hospital and Maskell's connection there and Richter's connection there, I really urge you to contact the police and Richard Wolf at the attorney general's office. He told me that's important information that he would need to know about. And you don't need to tell me or Shane, but you need to tell somebody. Agreed. And if you need help reaching them, you can always contact us and we can tell you how to reach them. Exactly. Arlene's question is, how has your opinion changed from when you began your investigation on how and why Kathy was killed? I am going to answer that one. At first, I was pretty much told not to speculate publicly in interviews. I made the mistake of saying what I thought happened. And of course, right away, everybody was like, well, Gemma said. And Gemma doesn't know anything. I do not know what happened to Kathy. I 
promise you, I do not know yet. (laughs) I think I will at some point. My speculation right now is that James Scannell and possibly a police officer who's going to be unnamed right now were the doers. And I believe that Billy Schmidt and Edgar were also involved. I think that Kathy was killed because she was going to report or had reported what was happening at Keo. I totally agree with Jean, and Jean says this in the movie, so I'm going to repeat it. Kathy Sesnick was killed because of what she knew. I believe she knew a lot, and she was collateral damage. She could have been responsible for taking down the whole archdiocese and the police department with it if she had been allowed to live. So that doesn't, I mean, they had to do something to shut her up. And I think there are people living that know the details. And again, I hope their conscience is bothering them because they need to do something before they get on the down elevator. So right now, I do believe that Kathy was abducted, approached in her parking lot. And again, this is speculation, people. I think several men were there. I believe they pushed her over to the passenger side of the car. And that's how the little trash bucket got knocked over. I think the muley's buns were probably on that seat next to her and may have gotten knocked to the floor. Gary Childs reports that there was a report that somebody saw a woman trying to get out of a car on North Bend Road and a man was driving. I think that was Kathy trying to get out. I don't think she would freeze. I think she would fight. She was smart. And she was very feisty, I think. She was not a wimp in any way. I think possibly there was more than one man in the car with her. If she was in the passenger side, somebody could have been in the back. Kathy's had different kinds of injuries. Somebody strangled her, and that's possible that that happened before the head injury in order to make her unconscious. I think we have heard that her car followed a car out of the parking lot. I don't think she was driving. I think somebody was driving her car. I believe Edgar's car may have been the one that they were following. And we know that the next day when he showed up at home, he wouldn't let his wife open the trunk. So we don't know if maybe there was evidence there, blood, her body, who knows. But I do believe that he was directly involved in her murder. And I don't think that she was left at the place where she was found. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but that's what I think about how and why she was murdered. Do you want me to say anything about moving her body? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. A lot of you have claimed that Brian Schmidt, if he, if his story is correct, that the apartment Kathy and Russell lived in was the scene of a crime. Nothing happened in that apartment that had to do with Kathy's murder. She was not killed. I don't believe so. 
because we know Sharon was there the next morning early. If somebody had been killed in that apartment, that would have been a crime scene all taped off and nobody would have been able to get in there. To make Brian's story, and remember, he was a little kid, like seven, to make it fit, here's what I think happened. I think weeks, I think after Gene saw the body of Kathy, Maskell panicked and figured they better move Kathy because Jean could find her way back there and bring somebody like the police or her brothers. She's got eight brothers. She's, the wagons were circling to protect her. I think he got whoever the guys were, Skippy and maybe Edgar and Billy. We don't know who all it was to go in the nun's apartment weeks after everything happened, but before she was found, to get a blanket or something that they could wrap Kathy in to move her. Now, if they took a rug or a blanket from Billy's apartment, it would have fibers, crumbs, whatever from the men on it. If they took it from the nun's apartment, it would be obvious if you took a rug. It would not be obvious if you took a big blanket. I do not and have never believed that there was a body rolled up in that blanket. I think it was a blanket, but they intentionally took it from the nun's apartment. I don't think they planned ahead to do that. I think they were stuck. And I think that's what Brian saw. It was a morning. He was back in his uncle's apartment playing with his uncle Bobby. And he went with them. And they went somewhere in the monumental road area. I think she was left behind the shop. I think that's where Jean was taken. So I don't think she was moved very far. But I do think that's when they moved her to the place where she was found. And I think that's what his story is about, because that would all make sense. I also do not think it was a coincidence that Scannell was working the day that Kathy was found. I think that was arranged because he was a lieutenant and he, lieutenants did not work on Saturdays. They took turns. So he that was his rotation he was working. I've looked at that picture of the police officers and detectives standing on the hill overlooking that dump. And I think one of those is Scannell. Would love to know who the other ones are. They might be still living, but we don't know. Do you remember how old Brian was when he, that event happened? I think he was seven, six or seven. And at the time he gave that interview, I don't know. Uh, Sharon Schmidt would be able to answer this. I don't know how well he was. I don't know if he was having health issues or was confused. But I think he saw something. But I think it happened after the heat died off at the carriage house apart. These guys were not angels. So it would have been very easy to pick a lock to get something out of that apartment. Or like my neighbor has my apartment key. The nuns could have given them a key in case they forgot theirs, especially if they were neighbors. And we know they were friendly because Sharon Schmidt's mom talks about being introduced to Kathy, that she was over there seeing Billy. And Billy said, this is my neighbor. 
Sister Catherine. It wasn't like they didn't know her. To add just a little bit, Brian, we believe he was about seven years old when that memory would have taken place. I do believe that, you know, this is again my personal opinion, but I do believe that he is being honest, that he remembers those events happening. Oh, yeah. But, but something that we know from memories of adults from their childhood, especially at seven, is although we can hear factual information coming out, the remembering process may not be linking correctly. So, for example, I also don't believe that Kathy was in her apartment and that stuff happened. However, I do believe that he does remember main parts of the event that happened. Again, when you're seven and remembering it many years later, I definitely do believe him and that the events happened. It's just I don't think that some of the connections were correct in his memory. Going back to you said that you also believed that Scannell, it was arranged that he would be the officer on duty that day. What is your opinion of the hunters that found Kathy? A question that I have written down is, were there any developments from the hunters? And did Maryland have a legal hunting season back then? The area there by the business and the houses in 1969, there's a question on if someone could hunt in that area. Okay, people used to hunt small game over there a lot. I only know that because I've been over there and have talked to people that live over there. I do not know anything about licenses. This was January. What concerns me is that there's, there is one article about the hunters, and it was a man and his son, and the son's name, last name, that's Teddy saying hi. The son's name is not the same as the father's name. The father's name was George Eugene Brown. His son's name, I can't remember it, but it is, it's a different last name. Anyway, they didn't live over there. I don't understand why, it wasn't like you'd be hunting deer over there. You'd be hunting squirrels and what else? What else? Rabbits, maybe. Not big game. They lived in Middle River. So I started looking into that information and found some interesting information about the hunters that I turned over to the police. The father has a record, okay? I think they were paid to find her because they came from the other side of the city where Maskell hung out at the marina, where Maskell's boat was, where Scannell and Maskell went out on boats. And I think it would have been easy to come across people that would have done that for them. So I would love to talk to the son. We're going to try, I'm going to try and find him. Haven't found him yet. I'm a little nervous about contacting the father, but he's still living. And the son was not a little kid. We're talking either a teenager or a little bit older. I do not believe that they found her by accident. I think everything was planned that day down to them finding her and Scannell being the first officer to respond to the patrol officer. Why do you think they wanted her to be found? They probably had showed Kathy to other girls or boys 
I think it maybe have been getting too risky to leave her out there. There could have been some close calls. You know, there could have been some development in the area. I don't know, but I think they just figured they got, this sounds awful, but they used her to keep mouths quiet. And now we don't need to do that because everybody is being quiet and we have other stuff going on. So let's just, quote, find her. And I'm not sure why they decided she should be found that day. But I don't think anything about this was an accident. Just to add slightly to that, I also believe that this scenario played out just like how you mentioned. I think that maybe a reason that they wanted her to be found was to further make sure people shut up. I say that because we, I believe that Russell was scared to death. And with Kathy's remains being found as they were, that mm-hmm. probably scared her even further. So I think that in a way, it was to also make sure that people stayed quiet. This is what happens to people who snitch. That's Maskell said it right to Jeannie. This is what happens when you say bad things about me. So you're right, Shane. And I believe that's one of the reasons why the faculty at Keogh, I've even looked to see how many people left in 1969 or 70. And there wasn't like a noticeable pattern but I have not, I've only been able to find one person who would talk to me and that person claimed they knew nothing. 